Welcome to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast with your host, award-winning realtor, Matt Glenn, and top producing mortgage broker, Taylor Atkinson. Professionals in the industry, enthusiastic entrepreneurs, and successful investors. When it comes to real estate, we're all in. Welcome back to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast, guys. Matt, how are you doing today? Doing well. How are you doing? Doing great. You know, it was a really good week. Bank of Canada decided to hold their rate status quo for the overnight yeah. rate. So a lot of happy people. That was primarily based on the GDP report that came out the week previous, which kind of indicated that we're moving towards more of a recession. Oh. Basically just unemployment's going up. You know, we're not doing economically as well as they thought we might have been. So it's nice to see they're not just fixated on the inflation report, but they're also taking in other metrics. So, yeah, I saw in the news this morning that 40,000 jobs were added in Canada. Either way, we've got, you know, another six weeks basically until the next announcement. But yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I think they're going to stay flat, but that's my prediction for this year. Yeah. So today's show is amazing. It's actually a two-part show. So next week we'll get in the second part, obviously. But we're yeah. having a returning guest, Stefano Panu. He was on episode five. If you guys have not listened to that, listen to that first. It's a great episode. You know, you get to know him a little bit more. And he touches on a lot of really good strategies. Yeah, because he's a financial planner. And he yeah. Uh, yeah. So we wanted to have a debate. What was the better wealth generating tool? Real estate or stocks? Investing. Yeah. Basically, who are you going to give your money to, Matt? Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Comment on the post below and uh, yeah, you can let us know. But it's, it was it's awesome. awesome. It goes long, which is why we yeah. have it for uh, two episodes. And it's an awesome debate. It was perfect. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of split between the two myself. Like, you really have to have a well rounded, not just portfolio, but people to work with. And Stefano is awesome. Like, work with him personally on some tax planning and financial planning stuff. And yeah, he's passionate about what he does. So you guys are going to enjoy this. Yeah, it was a fun one. Okay, we'll let you add it. Welcome to the icebreaker. This segment of the show is brought to you by Taylor at Venture Mortgages. Come venture into the exciting world of mortgages. All right, Stefano, thanks for coming back. Yeah, our second returning guest. Happy you're here for us. Today's show for the listener, you know, it's probably going to be a little heated. There's going to be some pros and cons, but essentially we're sitting down to debate the difference of real estate investing versus more conventional investing, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, that type of thing. So I was a perfect guy to have on, financial advisor. You can see who wins. <laughs> so Stefano, do you want to start just by telling us what is your perfect productive kind of Friday look? What time do you get up? What do you eat? exercise, kids, what gives you energy throughout the day? Well, thanks for having me on again, guys. Yeah, perfect day for me. I've actually probably about a year ago really took some time to map that out for myself, just kind of doing a bit of business planning, but then also some personal planning to really hone in on, you know, what puts me in the best place mentally, physically, be my best. And what I came up with through listening to some coaches. I mean, there's so much information out there, but I'm an early morning riser. And so for me, if I could get myself up early, like five, five 30, 
really have that alone, quiet time, what I would call me time to kind of do whatever I want. And a lot of that entails reading, doing some research, listening to podcasts before the craziness of the house wakes up probably around seven. Then it's a matter of getting everyone organized out the door, into the office, in front of the computer, doing some client meetings, a bit more emails in the afternoon. And then ideally, I'd like to end my day a bit earlier than most people, say, you know, three o'clock or so, to really go home and have that undivided family time, you know, the little ones, get them to their activities, and then kind of back at the research, the me time, once they're in bed, say, you know, 8.30 yeah. till about 10 o'clock. And 10 o'clock, I'm a sleeper, so I need my eight hours. So <laughs> sometimes it's 9.30 or even 9. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's been a pretty common theme for most of our guests lately, I think, is the early mornings and getting to bed early. I think 5, 5.32 is like a reasonable early morning. Right? The similar early morning thing. Yeah, yeah the 4 o'clock. It's like, why? Yeah. You know, but 5, I think 5.30 is totally reasonable. Yeah, I've seen some or heard some stories of like some athletes, they'll get up at like 2 a.m., do a workout and start their day. Yeah. And like, People have been talking about me, hey? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, well, in terms of the meat and the potatoes are there that day, dealing with clients and investments and planning and insurance policies and stuff, that's kind of what we want to talk about today. So the three of us have jotted some notes down. Essentially, we're going to have more or less like six loose topics and we're going to break them all down and yeah, go toe to toe. So... I'll just list the topics real quick. We'll talk about accessibility, and that's essentially how affordable it is for somebody to get into these investments, knowledge base, who to work with. The next topic is appreciation or growth, and that's you know compound growth. And we'll also talk about leveraging these assets. The third one is cash flow, you know, dividends, ROI, just like a monthly income based from these. We'll talk about tax efficiencies. Matt just fell asleep for a second there. Uh, we'll talk about <laughs> we'll talk about passive versus active. Like truly what is passive income or if you want to be more involved, risk to reward and yeah, that will kind of wrap it up. So, you know, enjoy this episode. There'll be lots of good nuggets here, but let's dive straight into it. So, in terms of accessibility, affordability, who wants to take the stage? Let's let our guests go. Okay. Nice cop out. I'd like to just preface this. I know I'm taking the debate side of the quote unquote traditional way of investing through say public equity markets or fixed income strategies while you guys take the real estate side of an asset class. And so I just want to preface this by saying that I'm not against real estate. I like real estate. <laughs> real estate is definitely something that everyone should incorporate as part of an overall financial plan. But for today, I'm going to hammer on real estate. And so I don't want to be the bad guy in the room because I know, especially people in this area of the country have quite a bit of an emotional affinity attachment to real estate assets, but I'm going to show you that they're not all what they're cracked up to be. Okay. So a bit of my opening remarks. There. Yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> okay. Accessibility and affordability. So when it comes to 
getting access to traditional equity markets. I would say that the barriers to entry were historically a problem for an individual Canadian or the average Canadian to get access to them. And what I meant by that was historically the access to information, the costs associated with investing, and you know the ability to gain knowledge, access information, education is what I mean by that piece, to learn more about some of these holdings that you could get exposure to was quite difficult. Over the last 30 years, because of mainly technology, but also because of the way the speed in which equity markets around the world are interacting with each other, a lot of those barriers have either been eliminated or come down significantly. So the first one I would say is fees. Let's talk about fees. So for somebody to get access to the individual accounts that are available for Canadians and also transact on how to invest those dollars that are in those individual accounts, the costs to do that have come down significantly. There's a number of costs that are associated with investing, like trade costs, embedded management costs, advisory costs. All of those costs we have seen steadily decline from where they historically have been from you know far back as the 80s into where we are now and you know multiple decades later. Yeah. And now, you know, one thing that a lot of these self-directed platforms advertise is that you can actually transact on investing for free. Whether or not that's a good thing, it's, you know, to be debated. But the fact that you have the ability to do that is kind of shows a sign of, of kind of where our industry has come from to where it is now. Access to information. We all know this. The speed in which we can get access to the information that's available on all subject matters is just infinite at this point. It's at our fingertips. Drives me nuts to think that you could go on a platform like TikTok to try to get financial information. But the reality is, is that if you had to research a topic, you know, there's a variety of resources, more reputable than others, but you could go to learn a little bit more about what it is that you're doing investing wise. I think TikTok's also good for real estate. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. The guy um, has like hundred thousand followers. Yeah. Looks real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I would say when it comes to access of information from the standpoint of what it is you're investing in, the different ways in which you can invest, the different philosophies around investing. Again, the ability to get access to that information has only gotten better. There's a number of books out there, podcasts, which are the avenues that I prefer, but there's a number of you know websites that talk about the different styles of investing, whether it's momentum or fundamental analysis or growth, like whatever it is that you're trying to learn about or philosophy or stance that you're trying to take when it comes to developing a way to invest. There's definitely resources out there that I would say anyone, the average person now can easily get access to and learn from. So how do you start? Who do you call? Like how do you just have totally green and you want to start investing like that? Like who do you call? So again, it's that idea of dealing with a reputable source. Yeah. So my preference would be for everybody to talk to a professional to learn the different ins and outs of the fundamentals. You know, what is an equity? What is a stock? What are bonds? What are GICs? What are the implications of owning these as a way to try and grow your wealth? My opinion is, you know, by far speaking to a professional would be your best bet. Like a financial advisor or like a stock trader or like what do you? All of them. So financial advisor is a very loose term in our industry. Yeah. But yeah, portfolio manager, I would say if it's yeah. purely on the basis of investing, 
Trader broker is a term that was historically thrown around. There's not too many of those available anymore, but they're still out there. Yeah, reading a little bit maybe around the philosophies of some of the big hedge fund managers. Ray Dalio comes to mind as one that's a pretty open book, trying to gain understanding that's of their philosophy. Book, right? Yeah. That's awesome. The app just came out in Canada. Oh, really? Yeah. You should download it. Yeah. Just sorry, side note, that book, the first like third of it is his biography, right? And yeah. Or autobiography. And it's really interesting. But then the second two thirds are just like false principle in there. Yeah. Like, How to train yourself to think in that yeah. systematized way. Yeah. yeah. That was like a very good. Yeah. I think, I mean, probably started off on the wrong foot because accessibility wise, investing in the more traditional way, like you win this argument, right? We can't really dispute that it's accessible well, how well i'll get there man but it's it's not really that accessible for the average canadian to go out invest in real estate however there is a new app slash website that allows you to invest in real estate for as little as one dollar yeah uh, yes based out of vancouver what do you mean you can buy like fractional ownerships yeah, in real estate through oh yeah. that's amazing they do it in Kelowna too i knew you guys had a card up your sleeve here yeah so you can buy real estate for as little as one dollar there's a company based out of Vancouver called Addy. So they do like syndications where essentially you can buy in, they'll put out the information package on the property, the projected returns, et cetera. So you, accessibility in terms of that, you can, but in terms of owning it 100% yourself, there are some difficulties with that. Well, hold I, on. Like, so Stefano, if you're saying you could start small, Stefano is what you're saying? Yeah. So I'm saying it's go do like a hundred bucks a month or less. Or yeah, it's more. an easier asset class to buy into with traditional investing. Yes. Where I think there's a negative implication there is it's too easy. And I think that comes down to, you know, the apps like Robinhood or Questrade or whatever, where, yeah, there are no fees and there is very little barrier of entry. So as long as you have $100 in an hour, you can go do that and you could potentially lose that money very quickly. Whereas real estate, I guess there's a lot more protection in terms of, well, the property has to appraise for the right value. There's regulations that basically is, you know, you have to qualify for that property. So you're not over leveraged. So it's a more difficult barrier of entry, but there's more protection base there. I think the key point that you made there is you need to work with a professional. And, you know, from my own experience, you know, 15 years ago when I was investing in more traditional, you know, stocks, et cetera, I did terrible, but it's because I had a couple managers that probably didn't do that well for me. The management fees were most likely more expensive than they are now. And then when I went off to do it myself, I just wasn't as interested or didn't have the education and I lost money. So I'm just thinking from accessibility, it may honestly be too easy and you could have the ability to lose money. So protect yourself by going out and working with a professional would kind of be my point on that. Yes. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And also to get into real estate, like everyone knows the barrier of entry to real estate at all, even your principal residence is really hard, right? Like you've got to come up with a major down payment. These interest rates right now are insane. So like getting in, like it's a barrier, but once you're in, like if you just decide to buy your first house, like you get married or have a kid and you decide to buy your house and then you wait a few years for equity to go up, hopefully it will over time. I think it will, but I think where real estate makes it easier is you can crack into that equity to buy a rental property. It would be leveraged, right? So if you want to go buy a $500,000 condo as an investment and you pull $100,000 equity out of your principal residence as a down payment for that, that is not really a huge barrier of entry once you're already in the real estate market. If you're not in the real estate market, it would be 
obviously super hard to come up with $100,000. But I wouldn't go take $100,000 out of my equity and put it in stocks necessarily. In my opinion is be quite a bit more risky to do that. So like if you're going to start barrier to entries doing a hundred bucks a month or 200 bucks a month, I guess a way to do that is to invest that way until you can come up with a down payment to get into real estate. The funny point there is I think everybody who buys real estate or their first house probably has some RSP, TFSA investment to build up for that down payment. Yeah. So, I mean, we could just stop this episode now. You essentially need both investments. (laughs) You need both. I think we all know that. So one comment that I'll make on the accessibility front for real estate is that they ran this human experiment and it wasn't that long ago. So many people may have seen the movie, The Big Short. Yes. And so what that movie amplified was that in the US at some point in time back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, you could get access to real estate with very low barriers of entry. Yes. Meaning that they had products such as ninja mortgages, no job, no assets, and you could qualify to buy real estate. And look at what happened. Yeah, totally. People (laughs) just went crazy. (laughs) We're not, like we have the stress test, we have minimum down payment, like 5% for your principal residence or 20% minimum for investment, which is more like 25 most of the time, eh, Taylor? Or, yeah, yeah. But a lot of now where we are today was a result of that to put up yeah. the safeguards, to put yeah. up the protection around what had happened before when it was allowed to be a free enterprise and you could essentially get access to real estate with no barrier. Yeah. Because, and this will come up to show my cards here, but <laughs> when you incorporate leverage into getting into an asset class, it exemplifies the good, but even more so the bad. Yeah. And we can talk. But the interest rates never go up. So why is it? Dangerous? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think we're all leading into the next topic, which is growth. And, you know, some subcategories in there are compound growth, appreciation and leverage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've all kind of touched on that. I'll jump in on this one. Obviously, it's pretty easy in terms of real estate investors to come up with the generic, well, you know, real estate in this market has appreciated on average 6% for the last 10 years. I know Stefano will probably have some rebuttals against that. And compound growth, likewise, in your portfolio, like appreciation and compound growth to me are kind of one of the same. Yeah. Leverage, I believe, is probably one of the most powerful tools that we have in real estate. And by that, we mean we're buying up to a $999,000 house with as little as you know 5% on the first 500,000 and 10% on the next 500,000 and 20% over a million. So you're buying an asset massively leveraged. And we always think of that as a positive, and I am gonna use that as a positive in this argument, We never assume there's much risk associated with that. But in terms of leveraging more traditional investments, I guess, why don't we do that? If we feel that confidently of certain stocks, mutual funds, et cetera, I know you do have the ability to do that. You have the ability to short them. Do you ever suggest doing that? Like if you feel that passionately that this is the best investment, why not leverage it? Why not 10 exit? So... Yeah. Why wouldn't you amplify the dollars that you get access to, to go into equity markets if that's the best way to build your wealth, I think is the the question. So there's two things I'll comment on, and maybe I'll think of a third. But there's, so the first one is that to my comment earlier, anytime 
you utilize leverage for the purpose of investing, you're amplifying the returns, but more importantly, you're also amplifying the negatives. And what I mean by that is because as we know, when you access leveraging, there's an additional cost for doing that, and that's in the form of the interest cost. So depending on your time frame, at some point, if you've borrowed $100,000 to put into equity markets, Statistically speaking, we can be very confident in saying at some point over a 10-year period, that $100,000 is probably going to be worth less than $100,000 that you originally had put in. And so what happens, though, when that $100,000 is worth less? At the same time that it's worth less than the $100,000, you still have the additional cost of trying to service the leverage, the interest cost at a minimum on what you've borrowed to give you that $100,000 to invest. So that's the almost reverse compounding effect that you're experiencing. So yes, say your $100,000 is worth, I don't know, $50,000, but it's actually worth less than that because you're continuing to have to subsidize that interest cost. So that's the reverse negative side compounding of borrowing to invest. The second is mechanism. So if you're looking to invest directly into assets that have exposure to leverage on your behalf, typically those assets have a really inefficient way of being valued. And what I mean by that is, let's say you buy an investment, you put in a dollar, but you actually get $2 worth of exposure to the S&P 500 out of the US. What typically happens as a mechanism within that investment is that they value that investment on a daily basis. So what happens on a daily basis is your value at the end of that stock day, the trading day, is then revalued at the end of that trading session. So then the base of the value resets to then be valued the next day. So it's not rolling upon itself as maybe it should be, or maybe in a way more efficient way should be. But what happens is if that dollar that you put in gave you exposure to two, and now your dollar is worth 50 cents, your 50 cents is reset as the value for the next day. And to get back to the $2 that you needed the exposure to, or even the dollar that you put in, you need a greater than a 50% return to just return to that same value, being that the growth is now based upon the 50 cents that's available and not the dollar that was there before. Right. So mathematically speaking, it's very inefficient upon the declines when using leverage. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. It was very technical, but. <laughs> and is that why it's more regulated is because, I mean, does the government regulate that and essentially realize that there's more risk on the leverage and those type of investments and they don't want people to do that? Not the government so much, but regulators. Yeah. The Investment Regulators Association of Canada takes a very close eye. Anytime someone incorporates leverage, there's far more disclosure that you have to provide. And at the same time, when you are looking to utilize leverage upon using what's called margin, typically the ratios you can't do like one for one, typically you have to put up a bit more to get less debt to equalize that $2 that you may want to invest, even though you have a dollar. And at the same time, if those values decline, you have to top up the margin, meaning your portion to keep the ratios the same. So how do you access that leverage? I guess, how do you do that? Well, we see people, sometimes they tap into their home to gain access to the leverage. I, see. I was coming into this. So yeah. if you tap into your home and then I go put it in the stock market, the government's watching that? Well, yeah, you have to disclose that you're borrowing with the purposes of investing. Like all planners, advisors, anyone that you work with should have 
documented properly that that's what you've done. Is there a certain amount for that or any? No, it shouldn't be any amount from what I believe. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. So just to get this straight, if I get a HELOC on my house and I go open a quest trade or like one of those day trading things and I just put the money from there, I have to disclose that? Somehow? Yeah. You have to disclose that you borrowed for the purposes of investing. You would want to because of from tax purposes, you can deduct the interest if you're doing it in a non-registered environment. But yeah, you should be disclosing. Would there be a way to do that where you, it's not a HELOC, it's just like a refinance where you get cash, where you wouldn't have to do that? Well, because it's still have to disclose it, right? Like know your client, but you wouldn't get the tax efficiency if it was a straight. Oh, you like you wouldn't be able to write off the taxes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Sometimes, like even in our industry, it was popular at one point to do these RSP loans. Now they didn't come with the tax deductibility because it was going into registered environment, but it was borrowing for the purpose of investing, and you had to qualify people more stringently to get access to loans to top up registered accounts. Interesting. The funny part there is when I asked, like, why don't people leverage to buy these more conventional assets? They generally do. They just leverage their house to do it. Yeah, they're leveraging like secured real estate. Wow, we're just so tied in together. I keep yeah. trying to break away from you. <laughs> okay, this is a bit of a loaded question and it's a little off topic from this category. But Stefano, how do you hedge against inflation? Just because it's such a, you know, keyword <laughs> that you hear every day. Like how do you beat inflation? How do you beat inflation? Yeah. The ability to beat it, I would say, comes down to, again, mainly probably a couple things. One is taxes, and I would say, and then the other is growth rates. So now is a perfect example, kind of gone through over the last year and a half as to what's happened in our world, the financial world, around what we've experienced around inflation. So inflation, in a very basic definition, is the fact that the costs of goods and services get more expensive over time. Compared to the dollar. I guess, yeah, just, yes. Yeah. yeah. What your dollar can purchase is less. is less. Yes. Now, controlled amount of inflation is a good thing compared to the alternatives. And the alternatives are disinflation, and the worst one is deflation. And I can talk more about that if you'd like. But inflation, since the early 90s, the government of Canada took an active role in managing inflation. They historically, the 80s, right? yeah, yeah, after what happened in the 80s. So they have a goal, a target of hitting a 2% target rate, which is what, you know, this whole year and a half has been about yeah. in the headlines. Yeah. They've done a really good job up until last year, really. Oh, you just lost all our listeners. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and so they did a really good job. Inflation averaged just, you know, under two, about 1.9 over that time frame, And recently it's run rampant. They've done a really good job now in getting it back into an appropriate range in which they've changed their definition on how they're going to manage it. But we can talk about that later, if at all. And so the way that they've done that is by rising interest rates. And so rising interest rates has affected the financial markets in a positive way compared to how it's affected real assets. And you guys tell me how it's affected real assets, but I'll talk about the financial markets. So the way that it's affected financial markets is that whenever we look at the ability to project into the future what could be a reasonable expected growth rate return, it's based off of what we call a risk-free rate. And typically that risk-free rate is tied to issuances by the government, like bonds or overnight lending rates or a number of different interest rates that they track. That provides, in our world, the baseline to build off of what the expectation is 
for growth if you have the ability to take on additional risk. So what happens is that because rates have risen so quickly over such a short period of time, that risk-free rate has risen and your ability to gain growth through access to financial, I don't know, call them instruments or products issued by the government provides that stability, that baseline rate that then we can make the assumptions from there. If you have the ability to take on some risk, what are those growth rates that are tied to those other assets that come with the risk. So we love what's happened in the financial world that rates have risen so quickly with the levels that they're at now because that risk-free rate is very appealing because we've come off of over the last decade historic level lows being that the rate was essentially zero. So you don't have to look too far from the savings account at your bank to realize that the growth rate you got on savings of cash was nothing. Now it's appealing. Now we're seeing rates of four and a half, five, just over five. For- I mean, when inflation's six, seven percent, like it's a constant battle. Yeah. As we record this today, inflation report just came out at 3.3. So it's risen slightly. I guess why I was asking that was in my mindset, an easy hedge against inflation is a massive amount of debt. And I say that because if the dollar is decreasing in value, why would I not take out a lot of debt? Because essentially that debt is now gonna just naturally decrease because inflation is eroding it away. To circle back on the leverage part of, okay, you know, I know there are a lot of difficult times and you know, interest rates have gone up and monthly payments have gone up, but essentially if you're holding a very large mortgage, on whether it's rental property or your own house, it's a difficult time in servicing that debt, but inflation is eroding against that debt. So in 30 years from now, you know, a million dollar mortgage now is essentially going to be worth nothing in 30 years because inflation is continuing to act on it. So that would be my last actually awesome insight. Just get through this. Historically, it's usually been happening where we do battle with that inflation, but yeah, in this very volatile time of inflation, me personally holding a lot of debt, I'm okay with it. And there's that ebb and flow consistently. And similar to what you're talking about, interest rates are really low while the return on those safer investments may be lower, but at least you're not being eroded by it. And similar to the housing market, you know, if inflation rates are low, your monthly payments are generally lower because the overnight rate or the bond market, the fixed rates are going to be lower, but it's really that constant just staying with a positive mindset, knowing that you're in the right asset class. In terms of hedging against the volatility on it, the reason I like real estate compared to some of those other assets, and this circles back to the accessibility part, is it's so hard to day trade it where, yeah, there's a part of emotion in real estate. It's a large part, but if the market goes down by 10% and you want to sell tomorrow, you're probably not going to sell for six months or a year because you're not going to lose money on it. And that inherently has some self-protection in it. So that's why I like the appreciation factor in real estate, the leverage factor. It has a lot of good tools that way. Anyways, that concludes my argument on that. Well, like Stefan, I was talking about like leveraging stocks or mutual funds or whatever, less than one to one, right? 10,000 could do more than 10,000 leveraged? No, that was just my example that okay. I used. I'm not saying you any leveraging to invest at home, but I just mean that yeah. there's options available out there and strategies that money managers use that could take a dollar and multiply the exposure of that dollar 
two, three, five times, 10 times through leverage. I think that's where my point about not day trading real estate really comes down to is if you felt that passionately about a certain stock, there are ways to leverage it at 10 to one and buy that. But I don't know, probably not a lot of people feel that passionately about it where real estate, it's just become the norm, partly because it's so expensive that you have no other option but leverage it. So yeah, I think I'm going to put a tick in the box for myself on the appreciation growth, but <laughs> the kind of kid that grades his own homework. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look at that. I'm great. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Though. You get some good points there. So let's just say you buy a $500,000 rental property. You have a $100,000 down payment, like plus taxes and stuff like that. But, and then if you buy the right property where the tenants, like the cash flow of the rental pays for the servicing of the debt, and now it's appreciating, which obviously it's not going to appreciate 20%. In the years that we've seen, like, but if you even do like a 5% appreciation, you put $100,000 in, but 5% appreciation means that $500,000 debt is now going to be double its value in 15 years. So you just made half a million dollars off of a $100,000 investment that you haven't had to service over that entire time if you buy the right property. I can't see that working out like that on your side. I'll admit that's a huge advantage to real estate is that you get to take a smaller dollar and buy a bigger asset through leverage. Now, but you also don't have to service it yourself, right? So like you're talking about making money per month, but like not even talk bringing that in, just the fact that you don't have to make the payments on that leverage mm -hmm. every month, mm -hmm. right? Even if it goes down, you're still not making the payments, right? So yeah, so a couple of things there. So we've touched on a few things and yeah. I'm not gonna let you tick your box. So <laughs> quickly there, I see the fire. Like, oh, damn, I trying to move on real quick. My last point is four points. Yeah. <laughs> and again, looking at it as an asset class. So yes, taking smaller dollar, buying a bigger asset has always been an advantage for real estate. Yeah. Now, when we talk about growth rates of an asset class, I'm going to make two very simple comparisons. I'm going to take the 10-year average. I'm going to pick one of the best markets that has experienced growth in the last 10 years in the lower mainland. The 10-year average growth rate for residential real estate in Vancouver, any guesses? 10%. Yeah, I'd say 12. Yeah, somewhere in that range. 6.73. Okay. And that's an annualized. So that's per year for the last 10 years. Your investment has grown. Real estate asset has grown 6. Point. Now it differs on townhomes, apartments, yeah, detached. Yeah, yeah. The last 10 years, and I'm going to pick on a market out of the US, the S&P 500. The last 10 years, the S&P 500 has grown annualized by 10.23%. Yeah. So... When we also look at that number, one thing that I would argue in my favor is that that number from an investment exposure to the S&P 500 is what the investor would realize. That I don't feel is the case when it comes to real estate because there are costs that are associated with real estate that the average real estate investor typically does not associate with growth rates. Yeah. And those costs are a variety of things like maintenance of the property, the interest costs associated with the debt, the taxes, the insurance, whatever it is, they seem to, in my experience, forget that those are tied to what the overall growth has been. And I will give you credit, Taylor, for bringing up the fact that it's because it is you know, more illiquid. And so they don't see a ticker on their door every day that values their real estate holding going up and down. But I would say that it's just something that we feel there's a disconnect on when looking at what the true growth rates are as real estate as an asset class. I think 
good point except for i when you buy a piece of real estate you should have maintenance costs like even if you don't pay them those months you pay yourself for those costs like taxes are in insurance is in vacancies are in so like you have those costs baked in like vancouver market goes up six percent like it doesn't have to even be anywhere near the ten percent because that's just the value of the property like if you just bought vancouver real estate without a mortgage how much rent would that make? Like you would be making $10,000 a month probably on an asset like that. That would just be paid to you and the property would go up 10%. But if you had a mortgage into that, you have your mortgage is being paid down. You're not the one paying it down. The tenants are paying it down. And likely if you buy it right, you'll have a little bit left over, but let's not even bring that into the picture. And like you're only putting in a fraction of the amount of money, right? So like at the end, like they say, investors should basically never sell. Right? So at the end, you just go see Taylor, refinance, take out the money, then you just have the cash, but you still have the asset. Right, So there is a fee, like obviously as a realtor, I get paid to sell the properties and I love to do it, mm -hmm. but like it is a fee that you say that, yeah, you have to factor that in if you're gonna just take the cash value at the end of that time, right? So I, like- Yeah, agree with you both. I do agree the cost of business specifically in BC is astronomical. <laughs> it is, right? Property transfer tax, real estate fees, legal appraisal. You move yeah. to Alberta, it gets a little more affordable. But if we were to take that scenario, so it's about 6% return or appreciation. Let's just say the property breaks even. Although realistically, no property in Vancouver is going to be breaking even. I think you would be at it. They would have 10 years ago. Potentially. Today's market, honestly, it's hard to find a cash flowing property yeah, even with this. a mortgage. So I will say right now, yeah, your scenario is probably going to be more beneficial in terms of that. But to get back to the leverage, 6% on a million dollar property. So there's 60 grand in appreciation. Whereas that, you know, say a $100,000 down payment at 10% with the S&P, you know, there's $10,000. So you're making a six to one return on the appreciation. If you're at net zero and we don't include any of those expenses. And if you're not selling every couple of years, Okay. Taxes. So two very important points you just made. Yes. Well, give me taxes on the rent. Like what kind of taxes are you talking about? Yeah. Rentals, selling the property. Yeah. Yeah. So a rental property I have right now is I bought it in, I think it's 2019, 2018 or something. So it's brand new. So it has virtually no maintenance. So I've kind of changed my mind on this talking about rental properties. I kind of want a property that needs some love just because it's just easier for tax and there's a value out there. Whereas I bought the property where the value is maxed and it's basically depreciating. Now, my own philosophy, I'd probably take advantage of that with buying more distressed property and added value instead of just buying a turnkey property that is ready to go. I mean, essentially, if it needs a value add, then yeah. I mean, we'll touch base on this on the tax efficiency part, actually. But um, yeah, let's chalk that up to another tie. Man, that's, it is neck and neck, people. <laughs> it is like a Taylor holding your stuff. It is like a sonic in here. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into cash flow. You know, oddly enough, this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually just what we do on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's a little toasty in here, though. Yeah. The first one we recorded, I was sweating buckets. <laughs> yeah. There, I just turned the AC down. Okay, so cash flow, cash on cash return, yeah. dividends. I think it was a good segue in terms of what you were talking about, Matt, where you don't have a mortgage. So real easy calculation on that is yeah. capitalization rate, right? We use that more on multifamily or commercial properties. 
and in the lower mainland. Stefano, yeah, you would be bang on in terms of cap rates in the lower mainland are probably between two and a half to four percent right that now. That comes off of the six that is assumed. Well, so to be the yeah, rate. to oversimplify the cap rate, it's essentially if you didn't have a mortgage and you bought it in cash, that's what your return on investment would be. So obviously there's not too many investors like that. Now in different markets, say in the Kootenays, you'd be looking at closer to a six or a seven cap. Yeah. So that would be kind of just the easy calculation on that. In terms of cash flow, dividends, you know, riffs, any kind of payment that you would receive, do you want to take the lead on this and give an idea of what you would expect? You know, if a client was really interested in receiving monthly income, what product would you place them in and what would your expectation be? Now, obviously that's a leading question. Mm-hmm. We're not here to say, hey, come invest in this product. You're going to receive 8% every year. There's volatility in it. But I guess historically, what would you place someone in that's looking for that monthly income? Well, so again, why it's fortuitous that we're having this conversation now is because of what's happened. And so the environment that we're in is that we can generate what I would call significant investment income in which we did not have the ability to do that before without taking on additional risk. So because of my comments earlier about inflation, the interest rate environment, what is happening right now is your investments can generate what's called investment income. And that investment income is generated typically in three ways. It's interest, dividends, and capital gains or losses realized. Before the first two in the form of interest and dividends, because of the rate environment that we were in, were essentially non-existent to very little. Now, because of where we are, that interest and dividend aspects of investment income have increased quite significantly, that now you can attract pretty good dollars for owning units or shares of investments or shares in a company. And those have allowed for Canadians in our current environment to then be able to adjust their risk tolerance because we know that now those interests and dividends will be being paid to them without having to take the exposure of what historically has been more volatile in the form of owning, say, shares of a company. So we can actually limit the exposure to what historically has been a bit of a riskier class in equities and actually generate the income that we need on what's called very simplistically the fixed income side of the investment portfolio, being more exposure to like bonds, GICs, high interest savings account, cash-like instruments. So I think I'm answering your question as to what you would do if you are looking to generate income. It would be to put your dollars on the appropriate side of your investment portfolio that could generate the most or significant amount of now investment income. And that we're seeing again starting to rise up in, again, those fixed income cash-like instruments. If you're getting paid dividends, like how often do you get paid? Yeah, it depends. You can receive dividends. Some distributions are made monthly, some are quarterly, and some are annually. And so roughly how much do you make? I guess obviously that's just... Really that's a real tough question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm just trying to compare it to real estate here. So you said the S&P over the last 10 years, 10%? Yeah, I can tell you what the yeah. dividend rate is on the S&P 500. Now this is purely exposure to only equities, 2%. The S&P is 2% dividends? Annually? Yes. But are you then required, like as a portion of the growth, put back in 
that's typically what happens is you've reinvested back so to are most investors not taking out the dividends they're reinvesting it to get the compound growth so is that where the S&P was showing 10% growth before is because you're reinvesting that dividend that's right that's called total return as okay. opposed to cumulative return which is just if you took the dividends out just what the S&P 500 has done over the past 10 years without reinvesting those dividends okay so from a what I call a cash on cash return and this is more on multifamily properties, you use this metric, but you can certainly do it on condos and family houses. But there's your cap rate and your cash on cash return. And the cash on cash return is essentially your down payment inclusive of, and I know you said most investors don't look at this, but I have a spreadsheet, which I'm happy to share with anyone, which includes closing costs, legal appraisal, property transfer tax, all that stuff. So it's essentially dollar for dollar what you put into it, what that's going to return from a cash flow point of view. So for one of my properties, it's 8% cash on cash return. And that was in year one. Usually what happens with real estate is that cash on cash return actually depletes, lowers because you have more capital invested. And so it's actually less return on the dollar amount that you have tied up in there, which at some point would then encourage you to refinance and leverage it again. So I have a very real life scenario where I generally get about 8% out of that property from an investment like dividend point of view. So that's kind of my number. I wouldn't go much lower than that in some real estate because there has to be a margin for error. You know, there's obviously going to be some expenses that come up and you want to generate some income. So I would say for the average investor, if you can get an 8% return on your investment, then that's pretty good. Yeah, I'd agree. And those are all inclusive of all the costs associated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, still S&P has done close to 11. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to talk about not day trading real estate, but if you could, and you know, there are some strategies here, but essentially now is a, not to try and help you out, not that you need it, but now would be a really good time to invest in those instead of real estate. Right? Well, what's like, happened because of the environment is financial assets are appreciating, which is exactly. why we're so going home about yeah. investing and real assets have, well, you tell me what they've done. What has happened to them over the last 18 months, given the new environment we're in? Pretty flat. Okay. flat. I'd yeah. say stagnant. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Like if you could- Which is, I would say still a positive yeah. considering what could have happened. Yeah. I think if you- Or could um, happen still. Yeah. No, I agree with you there. I guess to time it perfectly, if someone would have sold their real estate a year and a half ago, you know, when it somewhat peaked, invested with you in a balanced portfolio because of the rising interest rate environment, you would have seen a greater return on that. But that's what we're trying to coach people not to do, I guess, is, you know, don't flop back and forth. If only there were a way you could leverage that real estate with the tax efficiency and invest it in a non-registered account, you could double dip there. I'm trying really hard not to put the planning hat on too, because yes, you should have a plan behind what it is that you're doing, real estate, investing, ideally a combination of both, but there should be purpose behind it. And mainly the purpose to keep you on track, because as we know, those knee jerk emotional decisions, whether it is real estate or investing, never prove to anyone's benefit. Yes. Yeah. 
more times than not, you know, the old adage of you're selling at a high and buying at a low, yeah. or the other way around, sorry, buying at a high and selling at a low. Also, like, <laughs> there's a kind of a personal aspect to this where you have to like what you're doing, yeah. right? If you don't like it, either one of these things, then just don't do it, right? Like go uh, do the other one that you do like, because these are both passive, arguably passive ways to build wealth, but like you still have to be involved, you know, and if you don't like doing it, you're not going to pay attention. You're not going to get the most out of it. Stick with the one you like. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap up this episode and we're going to cut this into two parts, actually. So next week, we will be releasing part two of this where we touch on tax efficiency, passive versus active. And we'll see how many points Taylor gives himself. And we should actually have, you know, it'd be great. Yeah. If people could, uh, I don't know, throw in some comments and decide who wins this thing. Yeah. Maybe we should bet 20 bucks on it. You know, whoever gets the most votes or likes wins. But yeah, tune in next week, guys, for wrapping this thing up. Thanks for listening to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast. Be sure to reach out and let us know how else we can add value to your Kelowna real estate journey. Please show some support by hitting the like, share, and subscribe button. This is sponsored by Matt Glenn Real Estate and Taylor Adventure Mortgages.